to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Singreven. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Lord, um, we ask that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit and illuminate it for us. Give us wisdom and insight and understanding. Show us once again the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Help us to treasure him more and love him more than we ever have. Help us to see him as he truly is. God, Savior, Lord, King, the lover of our souls, and the one who brings us back to God. We love you, Jesus, and we trust you today. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, we have been in this series for um, three quarters of a year now. And uh, the good news is we're not done yet. We've got a quarter of a year left, and we're looking at Jesus. We're calling this series Centered, looking at Jesus Christ, the foundation, the center of the Christian faith. And you might say, well, why are we spending so much time on Jesus? Well, it's because we believe there is nothing more important about you than what you believe about this God-man, Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important in your life than what you believe about him. And you'll notice that after this series on Jesus is done, we're still going to talk about Jesus every week. We're still going to sing about him because he is the the center of the Christian faith. He's everything. It's all about Jesus. So here at Life Church, we're kind of like a band with one song. We just play it over and over again and get louder and louder. We're always talking about Jesus, okay? Um, And so even after this series is done, we're still going to talk about Jesus. And we're going to do that again today finishing up in his miracles. We've talked about his teachings. We've talked about some of the highlights of his life. We've talked about his parables. And now we've been in a mini-series on his miracles. And I've entitled today's message, Jesus and the Bad Guys. Okay? And you'll get to find out why I've chosen that that title for this particular message. Um, But we've seen Jesus do a number of miracles now at this point. Um, We've been in this series for several weeks. We've seen him heal and do miracles for his friends like raising Lazarus from the dead. We actually saw that in the highlights of Jesus' life. Dr. Hitchcock preached that to us. Um, We've seen him uh, heal Peter's mother-in-law. So we've seen him do miracles for people who are close to him, people who are friends of his. We've also seen him do a number of miracles for people who are poor, broken, um, the outcasts, the marginalized of society, like like, um, the, the demoniac. We've seen him heal the ten lepers. We've seen him heal blind Bartimaeus. But today... We're going to get to see Jesus do a miracle for an entirely different category of people. Today, we're going to get to see Jesus do a miracle for an enemy. For an enemy. Now, how many of you have had or currently have someone you would call an enemy? Um, This is a person. (laughs) I heard a hallelujah. This is... (laughs) Let's just be honest, all right? Uh, This is a person who delights in your demise... Um, who celebrates everything that goes wrong in your life, who mourns when something good happens to you. This is a person who is fundamentally against everything that you are. They just dislike you. And it seems that around every corner, every bit of information that gets back to you says that this person just despises you. They're just fundamentally against you. Um, This person could be a coworker. Um, unfortunately, this could be someone who has been formerly close to you, a previous best friend where there's a big falling out, and now um, it seems like you're mortal enemies. Uh, this person could be a parent or a step-parent. It could be a child. It could be an uncle or an aunt. It could be um, 
you know, uh, someone in a position of power even, a, a pastor, a former pastor, hopefully it's not me or Pastor Bill, um, but a, a pastor or a teacher um, could be an enemy in your life. And, you know, Jesus' teaching about loving your enemies is world famous. People find it confusing, fascinating, intriguing about the Christian faith that Jesus actually teaches to love your enemies and do good to them. But I'm the kind of guy that if somebody teaches something crazy like that, I don't, I don't particularly like to just listen to them say it. I want to watch them do it. Any of you like that? Somebody says something or they're bragging up something. Like um, in college, there's this big deal called the gallon challenge where uh, a lot of guys would say, I could drink a whole gallon of milk in an hour and keep it down. And I'm like, no, you can't. You can't do that. And if you've ever watched somebody try to do this, they always throw up. But some guys would brag that they could actually do it. And I'm like, well, talk is cheap, man. You gotta, let's see you do it. Let's see you do it. Let's get a gallon of milk and let's try it. Um, the same thing is true here with Jesus. I'd rather see him live this preaching. Because preaching sometimes is easy, but living it is another story. And today we're going to get to see him live what he's preached. And this is going to be fun um, in a weird sort of way. Now, the, ne- the next part about this that I want you to see is the time and the circumstance in which this takes place, that Jesus finds himself in this opportunity to do this very miracle um, to an enemy. And that is at his lowest point, his darkest hour. Okay? Um, now, this is also going to give us more clarity than ever into who Jesus really was, because we all know that it's easy to put on a show when you're in your good times, right? Um, but perhaps the most clear example of who a person really is, is when you hit the bottom and you go there fast. You get that phone call. You get that email. Um, You're in that car wreck. You lose something very significant. That's where we get to see who we really are. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about this at great length, that if you really want to know whether you have rats in your cellar, um, you shouldn't sort of say, I think I'll go down and see if there's rats in my cellar. You know, and announce it out loud and kind of jiggle the handle and then go in and turn the light on and slowly go down because you'll never see any rats. Um, they'll all be hiding by the time you get down there. But he says, if you really want to know if you have rats in your, in your cellar, you should creep up to the door, open it quickly, flick on the lights, and run downstairs, and, and then you'll see them scurrying everywhere. And it's like that with human beings, too. If you want to know what's really at the bottom of your heart, you want to know what's really the kind, of, the kind of person that you are, you get jumped down to the bottom of your heart quick, and then you see who you are. And I'm telling you, Jesus is going down fast here. Okay? He's just prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, where he literally sweated blood. It's a physiological response to extreme stress. The capillaries in his face were bursting. He was under so much stress because he has agreed with the Father to go through with their plan. He says, yes, I'll drink the cup. It's not a cup of tea we're talking about here. He's talking about drinking the cup of the wrath of God Almighty against sin. And he knows it's going to completely undo him. But he says, because I love them, Father, because we love them, I'll do it. Pour it on me. I'll drink it. I'll take it for them. And so Jesus is facing his worst moment. He's facing the most incredible suffering in human history. If there was ever a moment for Jesus just to say, I need some me time. I need to be alone, all right? I'm dealing with the atonement of of the sin of the world here, guys. Just leave me alone. It would be right now. If there was ever a moment for him to snap, it would be right now. But, praise God, it's not what he does. He shows us who he really is. Let's go to Luke chapter 22, and we'll see this miracle. 
verses 47 through 53. The author Luke writes, While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who came out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is God's word. Okay, before we dive into the text, I want, to, um, I want to do a little bit of a side note here about the text itself. This miracle only occurs in the Gospel of Luke. Okay? Um, the other four Gospels, or the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, all give a similar account. They all tell of um, this little scuffle and someone gets their ear cut off, but they have different details. And Luke is the only one who includes this. Okay, so I like it when you go home and read the other Gospels and compare accounts. If you go home today, don't freak out that you can't find it in Matthew, Mark, and John. Okay, because Luke is the only one who includes this detail. And if you get into some of the scholarship on it, um, eventually what you're going to hear is, okay, we can, can we trust the Gospel accounts because Luke's the only one that picks up this detail? Um, what I would say to you is, These are eyewitness accounts. Now, Luke is not an eyewitness of Jesus, but he's interviewing eyewitnesses, okay? So he's talking to the disciples themselves, he's comparing sources, and he's compiling his gospel account. If you want to think about Luke's gospel, think about Dr. Olson writing the gospel account. Um, Every time I think about Luke, I think, what would Dr. Olson put in the gospels? Um, He would have incredible detail because he's a detailed man. He's a doctor. He's also big on Jesus as healer, so he's, he's interested in miracles. And um, don't get freaked out that the other guys may have left out a couple details. John says, hey, if we wrote down everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in all the world to hold them. So all of them are leaving out certain details and including other details. The point is they're trying to show you this Jesus Christ is God. And all of them, without question, do that together. But God the Holy Spirit leads Luke to pick up this detail that the others didn't include. So I imagine, you know, the, the good Dr. Luke sitting down with Peter and saying, okay, Peter, you know, can you please just tell us, tell me what happened exactly? And Peter's like, look, I cut the dude's ear off. I was trying to hit his head, and I missed, all right? Now drop it, you know? Um, and, and, and Luke says, hey, listen, I'm, I'm not trying to bring this back onto you. I just want to know exactly what happened because I'm being diligent to write this down for Theophilus and I, I want to take careful notes here and I'm not trying to shame you. As a matter of fact, Peter, I'll leave your name out. Does that make you happy? And then John, of course, includes it because John's probably got a beef with Peter, so he says, it was Peter. I want you all to know it was not me that cut off the ear of the sermon. It was Peter. And John is the only one who includes Peter's name um, and Malchus's name, okay? So each of them have a little bit of different bent. Now, Daryl Bach Um, who is a scholar on the book of Luke, says that this miracle actually adds to the historicity of the gospel accounts because if you're Luke, you're interviewing um, eyewitnesses to Jesus. Okay, That's where you're getting your your source material. And nobody would ever paint such an unflattering picture of themselves if they were trying to make something up. 
You know, Peter was said, no, I didn't cut off a guy's ear, and no, Jesus didn't heal it. And no, none of that ever happened. Jesus just got arrested. Um, you know, if, if they were trying to make up a story, they would never have included this stuff, but they were serious about what they were doing, and they knew that it went beyond even their own silly reputation. So they were honest about it. They, all throughout the Gospels, we find these kinds of details that are just the earmarks of historical eyewitness genre. Okay, this is eyewitness material. And, and the reason we can see that is they would have never included this kind of stuff because it makes them look so stupid, frankly. I mean, it just makes them look dumb. Um, but the point is not to make Peter look great. The point is to make Jesus look like who he is. Okay? And so there's my little apologetic side note. Now, let's get into the text itself. I want you to see two big things in this text, and then I want to tell you why uh, or talk about why that's so important for us, what Jesus is doing here. Um, the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is absolutely in control, even in his worst moment, even when it seems like evil has the upper hand. He dominates this whole narrative. All right? um, Jesus is still completely God here and completely in control. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus, in his darkest hour, when he could have snapped, when he should have been impatient, he takes time to heal an enemy. That's very important for you and I to see as well. And then we'll talk about what, you know, all the implications of that, all right? So just for a few minutes here this morning, let's look at these things. First and foremost, in Jesus' darkest hour, he is still completely in control. I want you to see his authority here, how he's dominating the whole narrative. After a while, you almost start to feel like, is Jesus being arrested here, or is he going to, like, you know, beat some people up? I, don't, I, I mean, he seems like he's really in control, but he is getting arrested. Um, it's because Jesus is still completely in authority here. And he starts this off by calling Judas's bluff. And Judas comes up to him and thinks, well, here's a way to sort of um, betray Jesus, but I can look kind of good to Jesus doing it. And Jesus says, what are you doing? I know what you're doing. You're betraying me. You're betraying the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite term for himself. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then Jesus goes on, and he's got to put out a little fire with the disciples, as he does so many times. He's in control here, too. Um, you know, the disciples say, should we strike with the sword? And um, what they're doing here is they're misinterpreting a teaching of Jesus that took place a few verses earlier. If you look at verses 36 and 38, uh, or through 38, Jesus talks to the disciples about what life is going to be like once he leaves. Okay? And so he says, hey, you know, before, guys, I told you you should take... Uh, don't take a sword with, don't take a money bag with, don't take a knapsack with. You don't need all that stuff, just go out. And then he says, now you should have full provision. Take a sword, take a money bag with you, you're going to need to go out with all that stuff. And the disciples, obviously, um, badly misinterpret Jesus' teaching to mean that Jesus needs us to defend him with the sword. I guess that's how we're going to do it now, guys. We're going to fight with the sword. As if the guy that calmed the storm and raised the dead people needs these disciples to defend him. You know, and so you can kind of hear Jesus' frustration a little bit, like, enough of this, guys. This is not what I meant. I was not talking about that. And he, and he puts out this little fire here. He says, Peter, for crying out loud. You know, and of course this happens. If, if John hadn't told us it was Peter, we would know it. You know, you'd just know it because a bunch of the disciples ask. They say, should we strike with the sword? And Peter just goes ahead and does it. That's his personality. I'll, uh, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. I'm going to help Jesus out here. He's going to thank me. And Peter, not being a great swordsman, misses the head and cuts off Malchus's ear. 
And then Jesus just says, guys, listen. Literally, he's saying, let this happen. Enough of this. Let this happen. I'm letting it happen. There's no way these guys could arrest me if I wasn't letting this happen. And by the way, if I needed your help, we'd all be in huge trouble. You know? I mean, I think he's like, you guys remember all those other, never mind. If I needed you to defend me with the sword, we'd be in way bigger trouble than you can imagine. Um, A few guys with swords and clubs do not scare me. I call them the waves, guys. You remember this? You were there, weren't you? You know, and, and so Jesus is saying, listen, I'm in control, fellas. Let this happen. I'm letting this happen. If I wasn't letting this happen, there'd be no way these guys could arrest me. Then he goes on and he's going to defend his reputation and eventually even give permission for his arrest. Um, he says to the high priest, you coming at me like I'm a bandit or something. Like I've been, you know, creeping behind rocks and beating people up and taking their money. He's like, I've been healing people, feeding people, teaching in the temple, and you never did anything to me then. Why are you coming at me like a bandit? Um, this is the ultimate insult for the Savior of the world, that, that they come to him at night, sneaking up on him like this, and come to arrest him like he's some sort of a robber, a thief, a bandit. But Jesus put them, puts them back in their place, and they have nothing to say in response, you'll notice. Then ultimately, he says, this is your hour. This is your hour. Um, In other words, I'm letting this happen. I'm giving you permission to arrest me. Now, you see in in people that get arrested, some of them realize, I can't run. That's only going to hurt me worse. It's only going to be worse for my case, so I'm just going to give up, and they give permission to be arrested. But Jesus, in other gospel accounts, he says, don't you know I could send a legion of angels in to, to tear these dudes up? You know? Um, he's literally giving permission, like, I'm letting you do this. It lines up with the rest of Scripture that says, Jesus' life was not taken for him, from him, but he laid it down willingly. This is the lamb that Isaiah was talking about, being led to the slaughter. He is going willingly um, into his darkest hour. He's not being dragged there. He is completely in control. Though it looks like darkness is going to have the victory. It looks like darkness is swallowing up and Satan is, is like, yes, I've got him. And he's just, it looks like the enemy is going to win one of his biggest victories. If there ever was a time when the disciples thought, boy, this doesn't look good, it would be right now. But I want you to understand that God, from God's perspective, he was setting it up, using the enemy's plan to accomplish the most incredible victory for light, for good, that has ever been done. Because little did Satan know that after Jesus would die on the cross, three days later, God would raise him from the dead and destroy death forever. How do you like them apples, Satan? You know, it's like, this is not going to go well for you, no matter what you do. It might seem like you're in control, but ultimately, God is always in control. This is important for you to remember for your dark hour. It's important to remember when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's important for you to remember to hold on to the fact that even if it seems like God is not in control here, he is. Even if it seems like darkness is swallowing me up, like Satan is going to win the day, he never ever will. Like Martin Luther said, the dragon is slain, the tail, but the tail still swishes. He's been defeated. Jesus Christ killed him. We still deal with this evil in the in-between now, between the time when Jesus comes again. But the victory has been won. He's been defeated. So don't let him trick you into thinking 
that he's got the upper hand. Jesus is always in control, even in his darkest hour. And even in your darkest hour, he's in control. Now, the second thing I want you to see is that in Jesus' darkest hour, when he could have snapped, when I probably would have snapped and said, look, I'm, you know, I don't have time for this stuff. Sorry about your ear, but I, I, got, a de- I got bigger fish to fry. You know, uh, He takes the time to extend a hand of love and healing and mercy to an enemy. Fittingly, Jesus heals to the very end, the end of his, you might say, the first part of his life before his death and resurrection. And of course, this is a theme in Luke, that Jesus is the healer. Jesus doesn't use his power to crush his enemies, but he uses power to extend love and mercy and healing to them. Now, who's this Malchus character anyway? Um, of course, John's the only one that tells us his name. He says this is, his name is Malchus, the high priest's servant. And one commentator I read said it's, it's probably best that we think of Malchus more like a personal representative of the high priest. That um, we're not, he's not talking about a slave, someone that's like, go arrest Jesus, do it now, even though you don't want to. No, this guy would have been kind of the leader of the band, the personal representative of the high priest. He certainly wanted Jesus dead. He certainly didn't like what Jesus was up to certainly felt like this was destroying um, the work of the religious people in, in that day. And so he's saying, um, Jesus needs to be done away with. So Malchus was an enemy of Jesus. And Jesus' action is perfectly consistent with his teaching in Luke 6. Look what he says. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. He goes on later and says, hey, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is the kind of God we serve. A God who is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We sang about that this morning. Now, I would ask you, if this is what Jesus preached and this is what Jesus practiced, how do you treat your enemies? Do you fantasize about getting back at them? Do you imagine terrible things happening to them and chuckle with delight? Do you you think, boy, I I really just, I I would love to see their life spiral downward. You know, do you sort of have a bad day when something really good happens to them? You see it on Facebook, you're like, I can't stand that person. Man, look at that. How do you treat your enemies, those who mistreat you and abuse you? Do you treat them as, as is intuitive, to get back at them, to plot against them, to slander them behind their back? Amen. Yeah. Or do you respond in the way of Christ, which is love, mercy, kindness, um, praying for them, blessing them? Now, I'm not saying you've got to go and be best friends with your enemies here. You know, if, if somebody raped you, you don't need to go and say, let's hang out every week. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that God asks us to pray, to love them, to seek their good, at least to wish them well. That's what 
Jesus is calling us to here. Now, C.S. Lewis says this is the most unpopular of all the Christian virtues. In his book, Mere Christianity, he says, chastity is the most unpopular of all the Christian virtues. And then later he regrets that and says, no, 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 loving your enemies, that's the most unpopular of all Christian virtues. That's what people think is just crazy. Um, and it is. I mean, it's, it's craziness. He says, it's laid down in the Christian rule, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Because in Christian morals, thy neighbor includes thy enemy. Thy neighbor includes thy enemy. Now, why in the world would Jesus teach this? I mean, we see that he teaches it in Luke 6. We see that he practices it in Luke 22. But why? I mean, I'm one of those guys that likes to know the why if I'm going to do something crazy like this. Um, And C.S. Lewis has a good argument here, I think, anyway. He says, because God is always concerned with the type of person that we are becoming. I believe this is a a big point in the chastity argument, too, that um, God, being a faithful God, wants us to become faithful people. And we become that way um, even in our sexual practices, even in keeping sexuality in the covenant of marriage. Um, but also in this, in this command to love our enemies, it makes us into a certain kind of person. And Lewis argues that um, good and evil increase at um, exponential rates, at compound interest. So take, for example, the Holocaust. Um, and Lewis uses the Holocaust because he's writing in that time. But he says, you know, the Nazis started off by hating the Jews, Um, But their hatred caused them to treat them very cruelly up front. And their cruel treatment of the Jews caused their hatred to increase exponentially. And their increased hatred caused them to treat them exponentially more cruel to the point where the Nazis became a devilish kind of people that we look back on them and we say, how in the world? Six million dead Jews and other kinds of people later, we say, how in the world did human beings get that hateful? Well, Lewis is right. Uh, the more you hate, the more you are, are, are prone to treating cruelly. And the more you treat cruelly, it increases the hatred and increases your capacity to treat cruelly. Now, the other, way, the other side of this is true as well, that if you don't like someone, um, or even if you're just not that fond of them, they're kind of whatever. You're just not that, you, just don't find, you find them sort of irritating or whatever. But you choose to do good to them and love them. It actually increases your affection for them. Have you ever noticed that? Um, this is why the covenant of marriage is so important. We don't, we don't say, I'll be married to you as long as I feel in love with you. That's a joke. That ends after 18 months. Physiologically, your brain can't sustain it anymore. You leave that island of being in love. And then you go to what's called real love, which is, I choose to love you. All right? Now, the Bible says um, that we, we ought to do that, but there is a real reason behind it. That's because when we are committed to loving someone in spite of our feelings, it allows for deeper feelings to grow. Have you seen that? It happens with your kids as well. You're committed to them no matter what they say or do, how naughty they are. You're committed to loving them in spite of your feelings for them, which allows deeper feelings to grow. And if you're committed to loving even your enemies in spite of your feelings, in spite of wanting to beat them up or sue them or whatever, if you're committed to loving them, it allows for deeper feelings of love to grow. And it works in the opposite direction. It works against that hatred and bitterness that will eventually poison you and make you the kind of person that God does not want you to become. It makes you a person more unlike Christ rather than like Christ. So this is very important. Now, it's, it's also important for us to heed the early church fathers here. Um, the early church the church before Constantine, the first 300 years of the church, took this command of Jesus to love their enemies extremely seriously. And I think we, it, it deserves a look of ours. 
Um, it became so important for them to love their enemies that many of them died um, praying for their enemies, blessing their enemies, even as Jesus died on the cross, praying for his enemies. And, and they died so, so famously that it, it became known, they became popular for this. Um, the word that we have now is, is the word martyr. Um, many early Christians were martyred for their faith, and we take that to mean someone who died for their faith. But the word martyr literally means a witness. And they said that um, one of the most powerful witnesses that Jesus Christ is alive and living in me is that I am able to love my enemies even as they extinguish my very life. Because that's what Jesus was able to do, to love and pray for his enemies even as they were on the cross. He's still not thinking about himself. He's still saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this witness of the early church Christians caused the spread of Christianity in an incredible way. It wasn't the only thing that caused it, but it was one of the things. Uh, The church father Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is like seed for the church. It just just spreads it. Now, we never should wish for martyrdom. I don't wish that on anyone, including myself. Um, But they said, hey, if you're going to witness to Jesus Christ, um, giving your own life, refusing to take life, is a powerful way to do it. Refusing to retaliate. And loving your enemies in the process is a powerful way to do it. They took his command to love their enemies extremely serious. I wonder how, how serious do we take this command to love our enemies? Um, I was confronted with this at the beginning of our marriage. In the first year of our marriage, um, I had a little rental property. And this is going to look small in comparison to the church fathers you know, who gave their lives. But this is 2013, loving your enemies or 2000, whatever, seven or eight it was, um, I had this little rental property, and this guy, and, and um, I rented it out to this family, and, and they had split and separated. He had terrible addiction problems, and, and um, different things had destroyed their relationship. So they, she and the kids moved out, and he wanted to stay there, and I had compassion and mercy on him. After all, I was a pastor, um, and I said, okay, you know, I'll be patient. Um, but, you know, I really need you to pay rent because I can't afford to pay your rent and my rent. I was, we were living in a little apartment in T at the time. And uh, uh, long story short, in, in those several months that I was patient with him, he trashed my house completely, let his dog go to the bathroom everywhere, and did not pay me anything. And so eventually I said, look, you've got to get out. And uh, he got out, and then afterwards he wouldn't answer any of my phone calls to you know, pay any of the back rent or anything like that. And I was just messed up angry. Like, I was just, I was just beside myself. And I, I can still remember this day, um, this night, I was sitting in our bed um, trying to read my Bible um, on all the scriptures of what I should do, and I was just boiling over with anger. And in the midst of trying to read the scriptures, I was just fantasizing about what I would do if I met this guy in a back alley. You know, like, I would beat this fool and, and, and teach him a lesson or two. And how dare could he do this to me? I, you know, Jenny was pregnant with our first baby, and he's trying to shipwreck us. And he knew the situation that I was in, and he had no thought for me at all. And he trashed my house, and so now what was I supposed to do? And um, I was just like, you know what? If I lose my ministry over this, fine, they'll know. I beat some fool that really deserved it. And I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm going to get in there, and I'm going to do this. And I was, I was imagining what I was going to do. And I'm going to go take his stuff, and I'm going to pawn it off. And, and I was just, you know, running through these crazy scenarios. And my wife is like, whoa, wait a minute. Praise God for wives, you know. Or I might not be here today. <laughs> be sitting in jail for, some, for over a couple thousand bucks. Um, 
Jenny's like, you know what, honey? Um, I've never seen you like this. And uh, I can't remember what else she said, but I was like, yeah, you know, you're right. This is, this is making me into a different kind of person. And so God had to deal with me on these scriptures and some other ones. Um, and I realized that C.S. Lewis and Jesus, of course, um, were really right about this whole thing, that uh, good and evil increase uh, compound interest. I was moving fast in the wrong direction, and I needed to put the other thing into practice. Um, and God dealt with me. Now, this, this becomes very personal to us here in this last part. And we've seen that Jesus is in control. We've seen how he treats his enemies. Why is that such good news for us? Well, that's such good news for us because if we plug ourselves into the story, we're on Malchus's side, honestly. I mean, we're coming to arrest Jesus. We don't want this king in our lives. We want to rule our own lives. We want to serve other gods that we love, the things that we like. And we want him away with you, you king. We are the enemies of God. So why is it good news that Jesus treats his enemies with this kind of love, compassion, and healing? Because that's us. That's us. Romans 5 verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Have you been able to see this? Have you been able to see that you're an enemy of God? That you hated God? You might say, Pastor Dave, I never hated God, the God of the Bible. I just, I just loved to do other things. I just, loved, um, I just had my other things that I liked more. Well, to God, that's hatred. You know, if I, being married to Jenny, if I said, you know, it's not that I don't love you, honey. I just love all my other girlfriends, too. She'd say, no, you hate me. That means hatred. You run around with other gods, other lovers. God takes that. He says, you're an enemy. That's, that's hatred to God. We were all that way. That was all of us. We were not basically good people. We were enemies of God. As we sang about this morning, we were children of wrath. Destined for destruction. That's the language of the Bible. That was us. That was you and I. Our tendency is always to minimize our sin. Oh, I wasn't really that bad. I, I was, I was kind of good. God's probably glad that he's got me on his team. You know? God's probably really glad that he saved such a, such a charmer like me. You know? No. We were enemies of God. Now, this is good news for all of us because if you're in here today and you think I'm basically good, well, the good news is You're not. So come on over and admit that you're a bad guy, and God will save you and extend a hand of mercy and friendship to you. If you're in here today and you're like, Pastor Dave, I I don't think that Jesus would forgive me. I'm too far gone. I've messed up too much. I will bet I could find someone in the Bible that's done what you did, and Jesus will still extend a hand of mercy and love and friendship to you. Join the rest of the club. You're part of the bad guys. This is the basic story of all the Bible. It's Jesus and the bad guys. Now, I got this title for the sermon because of a conversation I had with Christina Hitchcock about um, their son, Lazarus. And um, Lazarus, by the way, is a budding theologian uh, himself, especially in resurrection theology. So I always enjoy hearing from Z uh, different things. But um, we were talking about the Jesus Storybook Bible, and Christina said a while back that Z's favorite story is this story right here. Jesus' betrayal and his arrest and then the crucifixion. And, of course, you have to read the resurrection all in one story, so it takes you like a half hour. But you can't end with death. You know, that's Good Friday. We have to get to Sunday. And so they read the whole thing at one time to Z, and, and Z calls the story Jesus and the Bad Guys. And Christina was saying, you know, that's such a great title for the whole Bible. 
And we were talking about how that's a great title for all of humanity, um, for all of human history. It's just Jesus and the bad guys. We're all bad guys. We've all messed up beyond compare. We're enemies of God. And then right in the middle of human history comes this one bright, shining light, the one good guy, Jesus Christ. And He extends a hand of love and forgiveness to all the bad guys. He says, I'll heal you. I'll bring you back to, my, to, my, to the Father. I'll, I'll welcome you home. And we'll throw a party when you come home. That's the Gospel, friends. We're all bad guys. None of us are good guys. If you're here today, you've majorly messed up. Join the club. That's the rest of us. That's me and Pastor Bill. That's all the eldership. That's everybody in here. We're all on the bad guys' side. But praise God because Jesus doesn't treat the bad guys like bad guys. He treats the bad guys as friends. He treats them with love and compassion. This is how God treats his enemies. God says, you're enemies of mine. Destined for destruction, as we sang about today. Children of wrath. But here's how I'm going to do it. Me and my son have agreed that I'm going to take my son and treat him like an enemy in your place. And on the cross is exactly what happened. God the Father forsook God the Son. Jesus cried out, wailed, why, why have you forsaken me? That's what should have happened to us. We should have got that, fully deserving of death, like we say. But in his great love, Jesus says, I'll take it. Pour it out on me, Father, because we love them. We love them. And he took us from that place of enemy, and he made us an heir. He said, come into my house. I'm going to adopt you as my sons and daughters. I'm going to bring you into the banquet feast. You're going to sit at my table. You're going to be a son and a daughter of the king. Martin Luther called this the great exchange, that Jesus took our place and we take Jesus' place. It's not like you were just pardoned and God says, well, I forgive you, but you're scum. God says you're justified. You get Jesus' righteousness, which means that it looks like you never did anything wrong, and it's like you won the Nobel Prize, frankly. It's like you lived perfectly your entire life because that's what Jesus did. And he gets all your sin. He gets all the consequences of your sin, your brokenness. He gets your enmity with God and you get relationship with the Father. I would encourage you today to run to him. His hands are outstretched. He's, he's just like with Malchus. Here you go, Malchus. It's interesting. He touches his enemy, heals him. Here's your ear back, buddy. I'm not the enemy you think I am. One commentator I read said something interesting. He said that Malchus is mentioned in John. His name is mentioned in John because um, it's likely that John's gospel was written a bit later than um, Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke. And John mentions Malchus's name probably because Malchus had become part of the church at that time. That Malchus, something about this exchange where he came to arrest Jesus and take him to his death and Jesus says, this is how I treat my enemies. Here's your ear. And I can heal more than that. And Malchus ran to him. They believe. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But if that's true, I would pray that you would be like Malchus today. That you would see how Jesus treats his enemies and you would run to him. Run to him for healing. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's hard to imagine a greater love than this, than that you laid down 
the life of your son. At Jesus, you laid down your life for your enemies. Most of us have had enemies before, and it's hard to imagine doing anything nice for them, let alone dying for them. But this is what you did for us. So we ask, Lord, that this truth would dive deep into our hearts, it would change every fabric of our being by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray, Father, that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to treat our enemies as you have treated us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.